Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luhr, and today we're crossing over to San Diego in California to catch up with Jason Mashara of Upper Deck. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, talking about the amazing world of trading cards and, of course, your career in it. And, you know, where the industry is heading, uh, it's obviously a very unique part of the sports industry and in a wider sense, entertainment. Um, they're not just cards, of course, in sports, uh, they're cards in many other areas. And I'm sure we will discover all that later. But you've spent, you know, you had a huge, you've been in this industry now for over 16 years with Upper Deck, starting off at uh, sort of director of marketing level, I believe, and working your way up to the president now, which is, first of all, congratulations, an amazing career. But what we always do in our podcast, we kind of start a little bit more, you know, at the very beginning, um, how all these, how how you got into uh, business in the first place, and then later, of course, into the world of sports and and your passion. And and if I recall, there was something that when you were very young, um, you were already sort of in this sort of trading business, so to speak, um, you know, take us back. There and, and talk us about it. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. Um, you know, I always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. I, I first started out selling candy in middle school um, and actually got in trouble with the school uh, <laughs> and and threatened to be suspended because they said I was competing with the school lunch. Right, uh, okay. So I, I had to find something else to do and. I had been gifted some trading cards growing up and had collected some trading cards growing up and really caught the bug in middle school uh, around the same time. And very quickly, you know, I realized that there was a business and the cards had value and the values went up and down Mm -hmm. and started setting up at card shows uh, at the age of 13, um, kind of on the way to 14. And buying and selling at card shows, which led me shortly after to start working in a, in a trading card shop and uh, very valuable experience. It was kind of my first job. Um, and a lot of the kids that grew up uh, working in trading card shops at the time, you know, you work for store credit. Right. You know, you, yeah, you got you, you know, you work and you get more cards. And in, in right. some cases, comic books, the, the store that I worked in was a comic book trading card and gaming store. Okay. Um, so I got to a point where I had accumulated so much material working there that I wanted to kind of try my hand at my own shop and had a, had a sit down meeting with my parents and said, Hey, this is what I want to do. And they said, well, you know, when you turn 16 and you can drive a car and you can actually go into work, then, you know, we'll, we'll support you getting a shop. And okay, it was, know. yeah, it was an interesting conversation. And, you know, I remember, you know, being 15, putting together a business plan, uh, and it probably wasn't a great business plan, as you can imagine, a 15 year old kid put together. And coming up with all the costs and I had a lot of the inventory, but I knew I was going to need, you know, display fixtures and things to merchandise. And, you know, I would have to find a space and have a deposit on a, on a lease and, uh, you know, sat down with my parents and said, okay, well, I've got a little money, but, you know, I can't quite get there. And, you know, my parents told me, they said, look, we, we, we don't have a lot of money saved up for college. Um, but we've got a little, little bit of money. Um, 
and you can either have it for your college tuition or you can use it to start the shop. Right. Okay. Uh, and you know, I chose to, to use it to, to start the shop right, and okay. hindsight being 2020, you know, my mother always told me that was the best education you ever got, um, was having to run your own business. So it was, it was, it was originally earmarked for my college education, but it ended up being kind of a business education fund instead. Yeah. No, that that sounds amazing. <laughs> and like I said, you are definitely an early entrepreneur here uh, at that early stage, already willing to take that type of risk uh, at that age. I mean, that is amazing. I love that part of the story. Jason, I mean, that, that was a really unique start to getting into the world of business, uh, you know, and, and clearly you are an early day entrepreneur here. Um, how long did the business then last, you know, went, because I, I saw, because you, you did go to school, um, you got yourself a BA in you know, Michigan state and, a, and an MBA from Indiana university. So you did end up eventually heading back to university, but uh, how long were you running the, your little shop there? So it was about two years. And, and I think <laughs> I came to a very quick realization that, you know, I was putting in 70 hours a week at the shop and then, you know, there's all the extracurriculars you do beyond that. And I just quickly realized I wasn't going to be able to do that and go to university uh, and balance the two. So I had to make a choice right. uh, coming out of high school. And, and the choice was I need to go get an education. So it, it became kind of an easy choice. Uh, but, you know, it was difficult to, to shut down the shop. Right, right, right. Okay. Like I said, I, as you as you said earlier, I think this is definitely probably one of the most interesting educations you can have uh, that early in your life. Um, now, when you then came out of the universities, if I if I sort of see this correctly in your you know CV here, um, you didn't actually land in the world of sports or or trading card business. You kind of went somewhere else. So you know, how did that sort of all happen? And or you know, just take us through that first part real quick. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting story. I actually started working for an electrical distributor uh, while I was in college. Uh, I was working third shift in the warehouse, right. and yeah. as time went on, I ended up working in the operations department as an intern while I was still in college. And when I graduated, I didn't know the first thing about how to get into the sports industry. So I emailed and and mailed my resume to every sports organization I could think of, right. you know, not knowing that in sports, it's really about networking and developing relationships. I was, I was 21. I didn't know I had nobody to mentor me on, you know, the ins and outs of the sports industry. So I was pretty disappointed. I never got a call. I never got an interview. You know, I have a stack of uh, really cool rejection letters with great sports team letterhead. Um, <laughs> right. But, you know, I, I was in a situation where I wasn't able to, to go work for a sports team like I had hoped. And the electrical distributor that I had interned with and, and worked for offered me a position to start a new division of their company. Okay. And the electrical distributor was a very interesting one. So in Michigan, their bread and butter was supplying all the automation equipment for machines for automotive suppliers. So suppliers that made leather seats, rear view mirrors, uh, you know, chrome wheels, things of that nature, because it's Michigan, right? That's where the, right. the, the automotive yeah, industry yeah. is is headquartered. And they they saw a wave coming of technology in building automation, uh, things like 
stereo systems, security systems, lighting controls, um, a lot of things we take for granted now, cameras like ring cameras, um, long before ring was invented. And they said, Hey, you know, we do the automation on the industrial side. We see something coming on building automation. We'd like you to start this division of the company up. And, you know, we want you to kind of mirror what we do on the industrial side, but we don't know a lot about it. So we need you to research it and kind of start it from scratch. And, you know, coming out of college, it sounded like an incredible opportunity. I was familiar with the organization. And, you know, for me, it was being a, a business leader or a CEO of a company within a company, which, you know, for a 21 year old kid was a, a pretty incredible opportunity. So I, I jumped at it. Yep. Yeah, it makes sense. I can see that. Uh, and, and you obviously spent, you know, several years there, I guess, helping to build the business up then. Uh, Uh, but something, you know, I guess inside must have triggered you back to the world of sports uh, because I think pretty much coming out of, you know, leaving that job, you, I think you took an internship somewhere, um, if I got it correctly here, was the Atlanta Braves, right? Or, or a consulting job, maybe not an internship in that sense. But uh, so how did, how did that all, you know, how did you eventually decided I got to get back into the world of sports or I want to be in sports? Uh, tell us a bit about that and, and the, the process. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I got into that job and it was an incredible opportunity. Uh, the, the company believed in me, gave me an opportunity and, you know, I helped start that division for the company and it, it, it did great, but there was kind of two things that were eating at me that I felt I needed to do. One was to go get my master's degree and get my MBA. And the other was somehow, some way, figure out how to get into the sports and entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a great job and look, building automation is actually pretty interesting and pretty cool, but it wasn't where my passion was. Uh, I, I remembered working all those long hours at the shop and it never felt like work, right? Because I loved it. And, and I wanted that feeling again. So, um, what that led me to was to look for, graduate programs that could potentially get me into sports. And at the time, the uh, Kelly School of Business at Indiana had a program where you got a kind of a type, top flight MBA, but you also got to pick an industry to concentrate on. And they had this really cool sports and entertainment academy where you got to do a concentrated study on the sports and entertainment industry. And then as you dug in a little further, you found that Indiana University has an incredible alumni network of people in the sports and entertainment industry. Right. And it became a very easy choice for me to, to go to Indiana. And during my time there, I was solely focused on trying to figure out how to get into the industry. So, you know, I tried to meet as many alumni and executives as I could. I flew all over the country as a, as a poor graduate student trying to, to meet people and, and learn mm -hmm. and find out different parts of the industry. And that led me to some of the internships and the consulting projects that I got to work on. Uh, the Atlanta Braves that you mentioned was an incredible opportunity uh, working for Mike Plant and, and Derek Eiler on a project where You know, they were looking for, you know, a group uh, to come in and take a look and see where there might be incremental opportunities to sell season tickets. And, you know, we did a lot of data mining and looking and, and seeing because the Atlanta Braves were an incredibly successful organization. 
but like any team, they, they need to continue to figure out how to sell tickets. So that was an uh, incredible opportunity with two incredible executives. And again, as a, as a young graduate student, you know, couldn't have picked two better executives to, to work on a project with. Right. Yep. So that, that sort of got, you know, in now you got the foot in the door. Um, and, and just so for people to get a sense of the, the, the timing here, we're in the year sort of early 2000s, right? 2004 or five, I yep. think is, uh, when you graduate as well. And now you, you in the, you know, you in the, uh, in the business. Um, now, Again, from what I saw, again, yes, you did a couple of sort of uh, jobs where you're in know, Cincinnati Bengals as well, um, uh, a few things. But I think pretty shortly after um, is already when your career with Upper Deck started, right? I could see it here in 2006. Uh, I think you came in as the MLB and NBA brand manager. Um, so, you know, let's let's get into that. Uh, your 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 first day at uh, Upper Deck, you know, back to <laughs> clearly your the thing you have the most passion for. Um, and you, you did, I don't know how many years it was since then. Um, you had your own shop, I guess, in this space. So let's uh, let's go right there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I never planned on coming back to the trading card and collectible industry, but You know, I did an internship for the Chicago Rush Arena football team, and I was selling sponsorships. And honestly, that's where I really thought my career was going to take me. And, you know, when I was there, you know, selling sponsorships wasn't quite uh, where I found my passion. Right. Um, it, it's a it's a fun industry. It's very quick moving. But it just I wasn't super passionate about it. But while I was selling sponsorships, the unique thing about working for the arena football team is we got to touch a lot of things even as interns because it's a small group of employees working very hard for the same goal every week especially as you prepare for game day and one of the things i noticed there was that they had this great family fan fest before the game and uh the families would come in and they would paint signs and do face paint and have all these activities for the mm -hmm. families but i noticed that there were no trading cards in represented in this fan fest and at the time i knew upper deck was the exclusive licensee of the arena football league so i reached out and i got connected to a gentleman who was the marketing manager and i said hey you guys are the exclusive partner is there a card shop in the chicago area that we could get to to set up at at the games and sell cards or give cards out to the kids and you know he gave me a couple names i tried to reach out nothing ever came of fruition But when I graduated from Indiana, uh, I, I went through almost the exact same thing again. Uh, I called a ton of people. I sent resumes out. I applied for jobs. I, I struggled to get interviews. And I saw this job at Upper Deck. I applied through the website a couple times and never heard back. And I'm thinking, you know, I've got two marketing degrees. I owned a card shop. I'm a collector. Like, this just makes too much sense. Right. Why am I not getting a call? And I thought, you know what? I talked to this marketing manager when I was at the rush. Let me see if he's still there. And he happened to still be there. And I said, hey, Ben, can you get my resume to the hiring manager? I would really appreciate it. Hmm. And that's when I finally got a phone call. Right. Um, so okay. who knew? He paid off here. Like <laughs> well, who knew working an internship at the arena football team would eventually lead me to getting a job at Upper Deck? But that's right. that's um, how it kind of came to fruition. And, 
you know, walking in the door here, my first job was to run the NBA trading card business here, uh, which it's interesting, no matter how much time or how much you think you know about the trading card industry as a collector or even running a shop, uh, coming in the door and working as a manufacturer is completely different. Uh, You're you're on the reverse side of it. You're trying to make the product. Uh, You're working with the licensors, the leagues, the players association, the athletes. And it's way harder uh, to put a card product out than I would have ever imagined. And that first few months was definitely very tough and kind of a whirlwind as you try to learn everything it takes to put out a product. Yeah, no, I, I have no doubt. Now, before we get into, you know, Upper Deck specifically, but I'd love to sort of let's talk a bit about the industry itself. Um, you know, I'm sure everyone in our in, in, in the sports industry has heard of um, uh, trading cards and so forth, has some uh, sense of what it is. But you know, I'm not a, I, I'm, I'm, I was never a collector, like, to be honest. Um, so you know, I know about it. I, you know, but I don't, wouldn't know details. But I'd love to share a little more. Obviously, being someone like yourself now has been there for you know 16 years more than 16 years um you know so first of all from what i read again i'll do a bit of homework on it um i found a number 2021 um the industry size was about 8 billion um and then it's, it was talking about that you know the expectation to be about 20 billion dollars worth in the year 2030 uh, please correct me if these numbers are totally wrong um but that's sort of what i read um, you know, what I see is, of course, the U.S. Is, is by far the largest market, but uh, I believe India and China is starting to grow as an interesting new region. And, and I'd love to hear a bit about that because, obviously, that's the part of the world we're operating in as well here. Um, you know, what sort of cards are she selling there um, versus what it is in the U.S., of course, which is you know driven by the big leagues, naturally. Um, you know, you have dozens of companies, but there's a couple of the big boys, right? And Upper Deck, of course, is right up there um, with, with one of the, you know, being one of the, the leaders in the industry with Tops and Panini, I guess, some of probably the, the, the top three there. Um, so share me, share a little more from what you know and, and, and how this industry evolved, right? Cards have been around since, from what, again, I read is the first baseball card was created in 1860. So we're talking, you know, industry has been around for over 100 years. Um, you know, maybe started in a bit of a strange way. I believe cigarette co- companies were the first ones who did some of those things. Uh, but right. that all obviously changed and so on. But, and Tops has been around, I think, since 1988, right? Uh, so, uh, Apocard, sorry, it's been since 1988. So tell us a bit about it, you know, from your point of view, you know, where is this industry? Where did it come from and where is it heading um, in the larger scheme of things? Yeah, so trading cards were more of a promotional tool when they first started in the 1800s. They were kind of a throw-in with tobacco Mm -hmm. and then eventually gum and candy uh, as just a a way to differentiate from competitors and things of that nature. And, you know, it didn't have a large collector base. And it, it certainly, when they first started, there weren't a lot of monetary value placed on it again it was more of a promotional item and you see the old school movies of people putting them in their bicycle spokes or you know throwing them against the wall or pinning them to to their wall those are all true yeah you know it wasn't it wasn't the industry we we know today and you know through the first 120 140 years the cards actually didn't change much uh, they were still kind of a, a gray or, or newspaper kind of stock. Uh, the photos were kind of grainy. 
the print was kind of cheap and they were packaged in what we called wax packs, mm -hmm. which literally were sealed with wax. Wow. And uh, at the time when in the 80s, when more monetary value was starting to be placed on it and there was a lot more buying and selling, there became huge issues with people searching packs because you could easily open a wax pack and resell it. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of counterfeiting because the print quality was so low at the time, right. people were, were creating counterfeits, yeah. Right. And the founders of our company in 87 and 88 looked at it and said, there's gotta be a better way. There's too many counterfeits. There's there's too much fraud in the industry. Can we do some things that can help improve it? And oh, by the way, can you actually make a better trading card than what we've seen for the last 100 plus years? Right. And that was the brand tenants that Upper Deck was founded off of. So if you look at 1989 Upper Deck and especially you look at some of the other cards that were in the market at the time, bright white card stock, uh, full color photos front and back. Right anti-counterfeit hologram on the back yeah, of the card. Hologram was like and, one of the key things you guys created, right? Yep, and then uh, the foil wrapping versus the wax pack where you have to destroy the foil to get into the card so you right. know whether the pack has been tampered with or not. Right. You know, those were kind of the, the innovations. And the, the first sets from Upper Deck were so groundbreaking and innovating that they created huge secondary market value. And a lot of value was placed, particularly with the card that everybody recognizes, which is the 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. Rookie card. And all of a sudden it just spawned a huge increase in the industry. And you saw huge growth. You know, Upper Deck really kind of took the industry to a completely different level and made it more of a business than a hobby in a lot of ways. Uh, there became tons of competitors. I think in the early nineties, there were over 20 plus licensees in certain leagues like the NFL at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was just a massive business card shops were springing up. I was one of them as a kid uh, <laughs> yeah. with a card shop right. and you know, it really took off. And then what happened in the, the mid nineties was in 94 in particular, we got a couple of major work stoppages, uh, both in baseball and hockey. Right. And it crushed all the growth and movement that the trading card industry had as people became very apathetic towards sports during that time. And you saw card companies go out of business. You saw card shops go out of business. And a lot of that growth really disappear overnight. You know, you went from uh, somewhere in the, you know, five figures of trading card stores into the four figures of trading card stores. There were estimates that were, there were somewhere between 10 and 15,000 stores to, you know, just a couple thousand left at one point. Right. And, you know, the industry kind of struggled for years. There were ups and downs. There's a lot of cycles in the industry. And then in 2015, we started to see some growth and a lot of it started with hockey. Uh, and a lot of the initiatives that we launched there, it quickly spread to baseball and then basketball and football. And then we kind of rolled into the pandemic. So we've seen a ton of explosive growth over the last, I would say, seven years mm -hmm. in the industry. 
and uh, a lot of the figures are saying it's it's hard to to say what the the industry is uh, and you know to that point the industry is comprised of two different segments there's the primary market and the secondary market mm-hmm. so the primary market is the manufacturers upper deck tops and panini we make packs of cards boxes of cards cases of cards we sell them to shops mass retailers like Target, Walmart, Shoppers Drug. And then people open those packs and then they resell a lot of the single cards. They resell some of the sealed packs. And the secondary market is very big because you have, you know, 150 years of single cards on eBay, auction houses, things of that nature. Um, so it's always hard to estimate what the value of that secondary right. market is, sure. but that's kind of a quick history of. Yeah, no, no, fantastic. And I think uh, for many people who they probably would have heard a lot of these things for the first time, um, and it makes makes complete sense, especially what you just said, talk about the that there, of course the the resale market, which we'll get to later as well when we talk about now digit the digital version, which where it gets again interesting with NFTs and other parts. Uh, but we'll get there in a bit. Um, now, when it comes to the business uh, model. First of all, you know, my understanding is again that the, the the major leagues in the U.S. have now gone exclusive, right? It is only one yes. card company has it, and in your case, uh, you guys have the NHL, um, and some of the other leagues are with with your competitors there. Um, how is it in Europe? Um, do, do the big leagues there also just work with one, um, or uh, because I've seen in the with the Premier League, I think the clubs actually do some of their own deals. So again, maybe there are different rules in different parts of the world. Yeah, I think it, it is very different in different parts of the world. The the European market doesn't seem to have the same levels of exclusivity that we see here in North America. Right. Uh, the league the leagues will do exclusive deals, and then the clubs have some freedom to do their their own deals as well. Okay. So you do see uh, a little bit of duplication in certain cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're still learning uh, Asia in particular South America, Africa, what licensing rights are. But a lot of that is, you know, history. You know, the the U.S. has a long history, particularly with the the leagues and the unions, of how they handle licensing. And there's case law around that. I don't know that we we have that same precedent in some of the other regions of the world. Right. Now, again, earlier, you know, I mentioned already that India and China is, is one of those markets which is which are booming. Now, you know, in India, you would I'm, my assumption is the, the cards are going to be cricket there um, and not, you know, NFL or NBA necessarily. Uh, but what is the sort of breakdown globally um, when it comes to, let's call it the biggest leagues in the world, whether it's the Premier League or the NBAs, et cetera, out there? Um you know, what people in China buy? Are they buying cards which are linked to Chinese sports as the Chinese Football League, et cetera? Or is it they buy the NBA cards as well? Well, I think that's what's interesting about where we're at and trying to figure out the future for any of the companies right now. So at the end of the day, the the core business is the big four North American sports, baseball, basketball, football, and hockey. Uh, everybody's trying to figure out what the next grouping is. Uh, We've seen a lot of growth in soccer. We've seen a lot of growth in entertainment, in different properties. We've seen wrestling. 
uh, you know, for us, AEW, but WWE has a, a long history in, sure. in trading cards as well. Uh, and when it comes to different markets, you know, we do very well in Europe with hockey and the NHL and the NHL Players Association. Asia leans, you know, depending on the part of Asia, you know, Japan, Taiwan leans very hard towards baseball sure. for obvious reasons. Uh, basketball and the NBA have done a great job in China over the years and Australia, Indonesia, the Philippines right. uh, and, and those parts of the world. And, you know, there are other sports and other leagues in specific regions that do very well, like cricket in India does well. Cricket in Australia does well from a trading card right. perspective. Um, and is, so is that, that run just, by local companies then or are the big boys like you guys are in India with cricket, for example, or who is the, the card company in India who does cricket, as example? So it, it's been occasionally local companies over the years. Uh, Tops and Panini have both taken shots at cricket as well in India. Uh, we've looked at it a couple times. We haven't engaged recently in that sport. So it's kind of changed throughout the years. Right. Is there the, the business model with the federations? Um, let's let's talk about that for a minute. Um, my assumption is, having been in, you know doing licensing deals all my life too, that you're probably paying some sort of a minimum guarantee, um, and then there is an upside. Or or how has that model evolved maybe over the years? Yeah, I, you know I think even the beginning there were no minimum guarantees and as time goes on right. the minimum guarantees go up just like media contracts exactly. you know just like apparel deals things of that nature um so you know typically most deals are either a rights fee or they're a royalty against a minimum guarantee and mm -hmm. and look the 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 players association the federations the leagues they're all very sophisticated business people so their job is to try to figure out how to monetize each category as well as they can without completely breaking their partners, yeah. right? So it's always sure. an interesting dance when you get into any of these negotiations. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. And, and you know, without revealing industry secrets here on on the percentages, um, unless you can, uh, you know, what a, you know, if there is average. Um, you know, what is a sort of, you know, what is a standard royalty um, concept out there? You know, is there something which is, you know, as an industry rather than seeing what, what you guys are doing, um, is there something out there you can share? Yeah, I think it's it's always tough when we get into to numbers um, with the industry, especially with us being a privately held company. I I, I always kind of struggle to get, get into that. Um, but I would say it's, you know, it's fairly comparable with a lot of the other categories. So if people are familiar with, you know, other licensed goods like apparel and things of that nature, our industry is fairly similar. In a similar sense, right. Now, the, the big guys, are they running auctions um, for this so that, you know, everyone is bidding it for it? Or, you know, how do these sort of, you know, deals with, you know, the big four in the U.S., for example, how do they kind of work? <laughs> so that is a great question. And honestly, every property does it a little bit differently. And what's interesting is I actually think the Europeans in this case are far ahead of the rest of the world where they actually do fairly opening, open bidding. Mm -hmm. And they have, they set out kind of 
rules and documents that outline the bidding process. They clearly articulate what you're bidding on. Uh, they give the timelines, they give rules to the bidding process. And I think a lot of that has come from some of the anti-corruption stuff, right. uh, particularly out of soccer. Uh, a lot of the other licensors around the world, it's it's kind of all over the place. You know, some people tender, you know, requests for proposals. Some people just do a deal without looking at the competition or even evaluating the marketplace. So okay. it's a little bit of the wild, wild west. Now the, you know, again, just going back a little bit in history, and, and you mentioned it earlier when you started, you were working on the NBA, which was a huge property for uh, Upper Deck, uh, which you guys had, and I think you know there's also stories which I read on the internet about you know the Michael Jordan era. I think it was around similar at the time when when Upper Deck got the NBA and did amazingly well with it, and then there's there was a time when the company ended up losing it, of course, and the NBA now is with Panini, right? As the NBA, so. Talk us through this a little bit, you know, as the business, um, you know, is it purely, again, someone else later on ends up, you know, putting more money on the table or what kind of happened maybe around that time? Um, you know, where where did, you know, did, did uh, Apodex sort of, you know, give up this, this, this obviously very valuable property there? What what maybe just take us back to, uh, you know, what, hap what happened there? Yeah, it's it's interesting to look back now, but when I first started here working on the NBA business, it, it wasn't a profitable business. Uh, it it was it was the the products were very difficult to to sell. Uh, it's it's interesting. We had the biggest spokesman you could possibly have at the time. We had Michael, we had Kobe, we had LeBron, we had Kevin Durant. Uh, but the market for basketball was just really tough at that time, and you know, on a, on a greater level, the industry at a whole, as a whole was in a pretty tough spot, uh, from the kind of the mid to early, you know, 2003, 2004 to about 2015, especially going through the recession and everything we were going from an economic standpoint, it was a, it was a tough go. Right. And quite frankly, on a lot of the sports, the guarantees were just really tough to, to earn out. So as a company, in some cases, we had to make some hard decisions. In other cases, uh, the company was struggling a little bit uh, and there were some different legal issues that were going on around the company at the time. And, and in some cases, our, our licenses just didn't get renewed. So it was a combination of a, a lot of things at the time. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, you know, sometimes you, you know, you, you maybe have great top line, but if it doesn't hit the bottom in the line in the right way, you, you might have to walk away from business. I guess this is sort of the lesson here. I think what you're sharing with, uh, which maybe Upper Deck had to do um, in this. Um, now, I want to go into a couple of different directions here. Uh, one is let's sort of dissect the sports side with the other side of, um, you know, let's call non-sports cards, right? Um, I've seen lots of things about Pokemon, uh, obviously. I believe most of the major video games now have, publishers have cards out there. How does it stack up just from a pure percentage um, if you look at the industry? Let's make it 8 billion, 10 billion, whatever, how big it is there. How many percentage would be sports versus non-sports? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple different divisions when you look at it. And, you know, Upper Deck is the one company that touches them all. So there's sports trading cards, there's entertainment trading cards, and then there's trading card games. Nice. And 
uh, each one is kind of a different market segment in and of itself. I think what's surprising to most people is that the primary market for trading card games is much bigger than the trading card industry itself. And, you know, if you just take a, a stroll down the trading card aisle at any mass retailer, whether it's Walmart, Target, um, any of the drugstores, things of that nature, you'll see the amount of Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, magic that's on the shelf is is pretty staggering. Mm-hmm. In particular, Pokemon has done an amazing job running their business right. over the last you know couple decades, and they really do a good job um, building it. And honestly, a lot of times the trading card game market is not taken into consideration with the industry numbers that you see. Okay. Okay. Now, on the secondary market, the trading card game industry is very, very young. It's been around about 30 years. So you don't have all the different variety of cards on the secondary market that you have in standard trading cards because the trading card market is so much older than the trading card game market. And I would say what's even more fascinating is especially in that period of time we were talking about with the early 2000s to the mid uh, 2010s, the amount of young collectors in the industry at the time had dropped off significantly. They weren't buying sports trading cards, but a lot of them were still buying Pokemon cards and Yu-Gi-Oh cards. And that was their introduction into trading cards. And as they got older, and what we've seen over the last you know, decade or so is that a lot of these kids graduate, they start buying the trading card game cards, but then they want things that identify more with what their passion is when they get older. So if they become a hockey fan, they want to collect hockey cards. If they become a baseball fan, they want to collect baseball cards. If they become a Marvel fan, they collect our Marvel cards. Mm -hmm. So it's really fascinating to see that even when the industry was in kind of a tough spot for a while, there were new collectors being introduced, but they were being introduced by a completely different segment of the market. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense again. Um, now, next sort of uh, section uh, section I want to get into is the difference again um, in terms of character-based cards and images and auto, you know, cards which have autographs, and then of course you have other memorabilia, you know, from the jerseys to the footballs and you know shoes. Again, which I think many of those things you guys have on your platform. Uh, I went through it earlier. Um, again, let's talk a bit about that as well as what is really driving the business there. Yeah. So again, we talked on the the different segments of the trading card business. So for Upper Deck, we have three main segments of our business. It's trading cards, games, and authenticated memorabilia. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the trading card division for us is made up of sports and then entertainment. So, you know, we have licenses with Marvel, Eon, we do uh, James Bond cards. Uh, We do, we partner with Activision Blizzard to make cards of their video games as well as their esports players. Uh, So we we cover a wide variety of of, uh, topics on the trading card side. We also make board games and trading card games, which is a whole 
another animal. And again, not something you think about when you hear the name Upper Deck. You know, we're typically viewed as a trading card company. But that's a whole nother market segment. Gamers are are very finicky. Uh, they are in it for the entertainment and playing the game. And we really enjoy that market as well. And then there's authenticated memorabilia. And, and much like Upper Deck was started in 1988 to build a better trading card and one that couldn't be counterfeit or tampered with, same thing was true on the authenticated memorabilia in 1991 was there was so much fake autograph product on the market. You know, the founders said, hey, is there a way to provide a better authentication system, which at the time they patented a five step process to authenticate autograph and game use memorabilia that a lot of other companies copied throughout the year and is still seen as the gold standard for authentication. Mm. So, um, you know, to this day, it's still a core piece of our business and, you know, creates the most uh, collectible and valuable memorabilia in the world because people know that when they buy it from Upper Deck, it's 100% authentic, where the still the vast majority of product that's out there in the marketplace is unfortunately fake. Mm. And, you know, if I look at the mix of what you guys are doing, it, it looks to me, and I went to all the different websites, let's say the, your main competitors are similar, right? They're sort of reasonable similar, or is there an area where you feel Upper Deck is, is differently focused than the rest, um, you know, out of curiosity? So for us with Upper Deck, you know, we're the most premium brand in the world, and we try to work with the most premium athletes. And that's always kind of been a brand tenant of what we do on the memorabilia side. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it's hard to see when you look at websites, uh, when you look at the Upper Deck authenticated memorabilia, it is a piece of art. You know, it's not a standard eight by 10 photograph that's signed. We typically don't do eight by tens. We typically do things that are bigger, very unique, Uh, look very different. And again, it's hard to convey on a website, but if you ever get a chance to see our memorabilia live, you know, we have items like our breaking throughs where, you know, on basketball, we take an authentic game used basketball or an authentic uh, game ball and we saw it in half and we mount it in, you know, a almost life size framed item where the ball would be in the picture. It's now a, a, a ball that comes out three-dimensionally mm -hmm. from the item nice. features the athlete's autograph and it literally looks like a piece of art nice. so you know if you set our stuff side by side with our competition the difference between how it's presented is night and day so much so that a lot of our competitors have started trying to uh, copy our designs Okay, makes sense. Yeah, and and I saw that. Um, I think you have some of the biggest biggest his you know names in in, in sports there. Jordan, Michael Jordan, Gretzky, Tiger Woods, right? I think these are all yep. some of the guys you guys work with on the memorabilia side of it. Which yeah, again, like you said, it doesn't get much bigger than that. Um, uh, interesting. Now, the uh, the part I want to sort of now go a bit into is the. Uh, The, the new, the, the, the future maybe in a sense, right? That's of course the digital side of it. Um, now, anyway, after, you know, doing a bit of homework on this, um, I realized that 
you know, again, the word digital cards was started to be used in the early 2000s, which I guess just around right. the time when, you know, internet and all these things started to boom there. So it wasn't, it's not just, you know, it's because we had NFTs all of a sudden, it was the first time. So I think there was a few companies were getting into it already at that time. It, it looked to me almost like it didn't quite work yet. And now we hear, and, you know, we all seen NFTs can work, um, you know, what the NBA did for sure. And, um, and I'm sure others uh, will come in the future, but it's not quite there yet as well. Um, but I believe you guys obviously launched a uh, particular product called Evolution, um, right, which is what you call your digital collector cards. Let's let's go there and uh, tell us a bit about what you see and, and where you think this is heading. Well, I think before you get to Evolution, you have to go back uh, over a decade to when we launched our first tokenized collectible product, which was a rewards program with a credit card that our technology company, we we use uh, Dynamics, created. So okay. Dynamics had created a, a credit card that is, I think the best comparison is probably like an iPhone, where the credit card, you could actually load whatever rewards program you wanted on it. Mm-hmm. You know, you weren't stuck with a particular uh, airline reward or a hotel reward, you could actually pick your rewards. And, and we, we created a program for them where every time you swiped your credit card, you would get a digital trading card. And what was really cool about the program we developed with them was that every trading card had a unique identifier. It was tokenized. And if you built a whole set, we would automatically mail you a set of physical trading cards as a reward once you built the set. And why it was important that each digital card was tokenized or had a unique identifier was we allowed people to trade with other users to help build their sets and get their reward faster. Mm -hmm. So we actually created this trading marketplace in 2011 that was well beyond its time. Unfortunately, the credit card never took off uh, and it never was a success, but it set the stage for what we build a few years later called Upper Deck EPAC. And Upper Deck EPAC was the genesis of us looking at digital trading cards and some of the things that were being done in the market and saying, you know what, in our industry, it's hard to replace physical trading cards with digital trading cards. And the reason being, one of the key drivers of physical trading cards now are autographs of people's favorite athletes, actors, and celebrities, Mm -hmm. which it's hard to replicate that digitally. You know, people like holding a card that their favorite athlete signed. The same goes is a, a big tenet, and if you haven't collected cards for a while, people don't realize it, is that we get game used jerseys, we cut them up and we put pieces of the game used jersey in the card. And again, owning a car, owning a card that has a piece of, you know, Connor McDavid's jersey is very different than having a digital facsimile of that Mm -hmm. card or that jersey. So you can't, you can't really replicate having a piece of history, uh, whether it's an autograph or a game used jersey. So we created, we created Upper Deck EPAC as a bridge. And it's it's really the the one and only true digital to physical hybrid system that exists in the world where essentially you go online, you buy a pack of cards virtually, you open the pack of cards virtually, 
but the cards are all physical cards, and if you choose, you can actually have them shipped to you. Shipped to you, right? Okay. Now, if you don't, if you choose not to, then you store it on behalf of the the buyer, or how does it work? Yeah, we store all the cards, and we've expanded to other collectibles like coins and autographed memorabilia. We store them in our warehouse, or if you okay. want to call it a vault, you can you can call it a vault. vault. Okay. And and you know. One, we, we didn't think there was a replacement for those physical trading cards because a lot of people who collect physical trading cards love physical trading cards. Mm -hmm. But the dilemma we were trying to solve back in the early 2000 teens was that there weren't enough trading card stores all over the globe. Right. You know, there weren't even in North America, it can sometimes be hard to find a trading card store. So how do we open up the market? How do we deliver physical trading cards to people where there aren't trading card stores? Good. Upper Deck EPAC gave us that ability. Further, you talk about international like you did earlier. There's a lot of countries on the face of the planet that don't have a trading card store right. or even have trading cards distributed to them. We can now sell trading cards to every single person with an internet collection. Right all over the world and they're physical trading cards, right? That they can take possession. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing is, is that trading cards in general are a very social activity. And for those of us that grew up with trading cards, the best part was trading with our friends, right. uh, particularly as a kid on the playground trading cards and it's in the name, right? Yeah. It's called a trading card. And what's great about Upper Deck EPAC is we allow trading. It doesn't cost anything. And mm -hmm. as people build sets and build collections, they get rewards and achievements for building those collections. And now they have the ability to instantly trade their physical cards with people all over the globe and create that social community that has been missing for years and years mm -hmm. with the decline in the number of tr trading card stores. So it's really brought back the sense of community in a different way on the platform. Right. So that was our first venture into digital trading cards. What we, you know, were very aware of when we built that program, especially with our uh, experience in trading card games and our relationship with Activision Blizzard, is that there is a certain segment of the market that does like physical goods and f uh, physical um, collectibles, but there is another market that really likes digital goods and digital collectibles. Mm -hmm. And that's why we felt we needed to build an all digital system. But the challenge is, is that all this excitement about blockchain, the reality is, is blockchain's not mature yet. Right. We're not all the way to where that technology is a seamless, integrated, perfect technology. And a lot of the stuff that happened during the pandemic was honestly a, a get rich quick scheme and a, a way for people to get investment funds and seed money and JVs and things of that nature. They were never about taking care of the end collector, unfortunately. So we took our time. Uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about it, modeling it, and looking at what we felt was the best collecting experience, which led us to build an evolution platform. And what's really cool about the platform that we launched is it's purely a digital collectible play, but it's 100% integrated with Upper Deck EPAC. And they're connected, so you can actually bring your digital collectibles into EPAC and you can actually trade them for physical collectibles. Okay. So 
one of the things that is the buzzword right now with NFTs is utility, mm -hmm. right? You've probably heard that a hundred times. Well, now if you get a quote unquote valuable digital collectible, you can prove that value by trading it for a valuable physical collectible for the first time. So okay. I can pull a Connor McDavid digital collectible and I can trade it for a Michael Jordan autographed 16 by 20 photo. And that's true utility. Okay. That's true value for the first time ever. And again, it, it's a very different thought process, but you know, I, we're trying to think through what is the experience we would all want as a collector. And that's, you know, what we feel is a valuable piece. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Now, again, I'm assuming, you know, when, when we talk about NFTs, the, uh, the story of course always is uh, that the, the, the creator of the card, whether it's the artist himself, right. If it's music or other uh, IP, um, obviously there is revenue streams beyond the first trade, right? Uh, we were talking about it earlier. The secondary market mm -hmm. is a huge piece to the puzzle, not just the original sale. I'm assuming that's part of your business model as well, right? When you do NFTs, um, that you keep a you know slice of the future trading uh, part of it, or how would you? How is that structured in your in your NFT model? Well, the interesting part about whether you're talking about EPAC or Evolution right now is there are no cash sales on our platforms. Our platforms are dedicated to pure collectors, trading, and the social aspect of it. So on EPAC, we are connected to a marketplace that we allow people to move their cards and collectibles to a secondary marketplace and they can monetize it there. Okay. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes that was made during the run-up in NFTs is there's no separation between the primary and the secondary market. Mm -hmm. And what is that, what is the issue there? Well, the issue is, is that you get some of the things that we're, we've seen over the last couple years where you have insider trading, you have price manipulation, you have people getting access to releases before uh, they're available to the public. You know, we saw that with OpenSea, uh, we've seen that with almost every NFT site that came out of these these explosive ventures is that there were a lot of games being done. And when the primary manufacturer is playing in the secondary market, it creates a lot of opportunity for bad acting. Mm -hmm. And that, that was something that has been a tenant of the way we built these platforms is Upper Deck does not control a secondary market. And there's a second piece of that as well is that we are seeing a lot of conflicts of interest in the collectible industry in general. And if the primary manufacturer owns the secondary market, there is an inherent conflict that the primary manufacturer wants to see high values on the secondary market because A, they, they get a piece of it and B, it makes their brand look good. Right. Um, and they, they want, again, it gives the opportunity for people to manipulate prices. You know, we see this in the NFT world with wash trading to try to manipulate the market and make prices look bigger than they are. You know, there's just too many conflicts of interest. So for us right now, we're very separated from the secondary market. I think there are opportunities to partner in the secondary market, but I don't think a somebody who makes a collectible should ever control the secondary market. 
Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think again, more from a big picture point of view, if the, I'm sure everyone in the industry by now have heard of the NBA top shots, of course, you know, Dapper Labs did extremely well with it. Um, I have not seen the latest numbers. I, but I remember some of the numbers, uh, you know, doing at the height were, were huge. Um, you know, and I'm sure companies like yourself who come more from the traditional part of the world were looking at this and going, wow, how do we, how do we get a slice of this or how do we not get, uh, you know, that we do you know we're losing out in it. Um, and I'm assuming that's what evolution is about, right? Um, that you guys are looking at this and we have to be in it. Um, this is not going to go away. Um, but like you said, there is still things which have to be tweaked or, or maybe the, the market has to be still, properly established because you know there's still plenty of leaks around the world or at least you know major sports i can think of where have not really gone yet into the nft space and partially is probably because they haven't maybe they're not quite comfortable yet how it works or they haven't really figured it out i know fifa went a bit in it um during the world cup they had some nft project out there um we actually you know we were trying to help on a few occasions there and I don't see it work that well yet from what I, at least what I saw in terms of the volume they were selling, et cetera. Um, you know, so what, where do you, I mean, to me, you know, as I said, it, it's as big as that space can be. And I, I see tremendous amount of growth in the, in the, let's call it NFT driven, digital driven card side of it. Uh, where, where do you see this, you know, compared to the, let's call it more traditional side of the business? Well, I think the traditional side of the business will always be the bigger market. But the, the reality the reality is is the digital side hasn't been done right. You know, over the last four years or so, the NFT market was done exclusively for monetary gain and not for the benefit of collectors. Okay. You know, none of these systems were ever developed with the collector in mind. They were basically trying to get investments and become rich very quickly. I mean, every one of them was a money grab. And to the to the, the next degree, the thing that drove up the market was the, the participants on the secondary market being able to buy a digital collectible for $20 and sell it for $100. Right. So it was, it was all about making money. It was never, is this a fun experience? Is this something I want to do as a hobby that I want to collect? And at the end of the day, when I'm done spending my hard-earned money on this, what am I receiving and how do I get enjoyment out of it? Nobody in the market over the last few years had considered any of those type of important decisions as we got into this. So I don't know that we truly understand how big this market can be if it's done right. And we, we hope we have the solution for that, but I'm sure we'll have a few things to learn along the way as well. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense. And as I, you know, I, I was like I said, we were doing some marketing promotions for FIFA um, around that what, what they were doing, and, and the learning, as you said, was tremendous of what actually worked, what didn't work, what sort of you know customer would would get involved into it. Um, you know, and the cards, I love them actually. There, there were clips of World Cup moments you were buying, um, being a huge football fan or what you call soccer, um, and having many, many, many World Cups. So, you know, th these moments, I loved it. You know, I remember watching them either on TV or in some cases even remember being in the stadium potentially for those. And and so, again, the I the, that is the part I enjoy. Um, 
is the 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 the, the video piece of it um, more than the static part. Uh, that's sort of maybe just my own uh, personal inter- uh, part to it. What, what do you see? But that you know, do you see it just opens up a whole different type of buyer buying experience, having something which is you know visual, um, you know has sounds to it, has music to it, or other parts which come with it. Well, I think that's the exciting part about digital collectibles that does separate it from physical collectibles is there are things you can do with digital collectibles that you can't do with physical collectibles. Right. The, the the video is incredible. And, you know, being able to own a digital collectible of a moment that you were in a stadium or arena for and you witnessed yep. is like having a piece of history, especially one that you were there for. Right. Uh, having some animations and some 3D effects uh, that you can't do physically makes some of those collectibles very, very cool and dynamic that you you just can't replicate physically. So. I think there's definitely a realm where both exist. They both exist in tandem. They both grow in different areas and people collect one or the other or both as we as we continue to grow and test the limits of what can be done. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. And, and as I said, as I said earlier, I was never someone who was necessarily collecting the physical card side of it. Um, but I got quite excited over the the video part, and uh, you know, to me that was something which was talking to me. So I guess it opened me up as a, as a new and uh, potential consumer, there, uh, you know, fan of it. Um, well, yeah. and 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 look, there Please. there is, uh, you know, one of the things that we talk about here at Upper Deck all the time is that you now have a generation of collectors who never owned uh, a cassette tape a piece of vinyl, a CD. They've never owned a DVD or a VHS tape, right? They've never owned a physical video game and had to put a cartridge in a a console. They are used to consuming things digitally. And (laughs) yeah, it's, it's a different consumer than some of the older generation because they're used to doing everything in a digital environment. And collecting things digitally is not a foreign concept to them. It's actually a preferred concept. So I do think there is a a section of consumers that have no interest in physical collectibles. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Uh, and and like you said, uh, the you know physical has always a limitation, right? Because it has to be moved around in some sense, right? Um, or you have to meet people, or or you know how do you get it from one to the other? Or you, as you said, you need you need the uh, the shops to help you know promote it, or or exhibitions, I guess, or you know. Uh, Things which happen in shopping malls, etc., right? And and not a, not always all of that can be controlled fully by the industry and by the players itself, right? So you need third parties, and versus digitally, it is all you you have much more control over it. I'm assuming, right? Right. Yeah. No. I mean, look, our our view is we have more control about it when we manufacture it and we sell it to the end consumer because a lot of it is direct to consumer. But again, once it potentially goes to the secondary market as a manufacturer, you kind of lose that control the same way you do with a physical collectible. And we think that's the way it should be. Uh, But, you know, that that you do have more control on the first sale for sure when you're you're doing a direct to consumer sale. Well, look, we can slowly start. uh, I want to wrap up a few things here. Uh, We're always probably talking for about an hour now. Um, 
you know, if you sort of, uh, you know, what is the sort of the next big things? If you look into the future here for Upper Deck in the next five or ten years, uh, what do you see as is is um, your big plans in terms of, you know, if you can share some of that? Of course, uh, is it you know looking globally um, and looking at some of those, you know, emerging markets around the world, or again being focused on your core products in the U.S. or where, where do you? See, what's the mixture for you here? Well, the the one platform we haven't talked about is a platform that we launched last year, which was called Collect Forever. And Collect Forever is part of what we call the Upper Deck ecosystem. Uh, you know, it's kind of the the trifecta of platforms. And, and Collect Forever sells authentic third party collectibles from other manufacturers that we have relationships with. Okay. So our, our first two ventures into that world are comic books from Marvel and DC, as well as figurines. Um, we've started with Funko, but it allows you to, to purchase some, know they're authentic, know they're collectible. Uh, we authenticate them, we encase them, and then essentially you have the opportunity to send them home or you can bring those into EPAC as well. And our view is that this ecosystem is already the largest collectible platform on the face of the planet. And you will be able to buy, open, whether it's a trading card pack, and trade any collectible in the world. So already today on EPAC, you can trade a comic book for a trading card for a digital collectible. You can collect a coin and you can trade that coin for an autographed photo, autographed jersey, autographed puck, and then turn around and trade that autographed puck for a digital collectible. So that's our focus. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that comes down to the philosophy that we have where we want to allow collectors all over the world to be able to collect and purchase and enjoy their collectibles however they want, whenever they want, wherever they want. So if they want to go into a trading card store or a comic book store, we want them to be able to do that. If they want to go into a mass retailer like Walmart or Target, they should be able to do that. If they want to sit in the comfort of their own home and purchase cards online and have them, you know, boxes and cases sent to their house and open them in the comfort of their own home, they should be able to do that. Or if they want to go on EPAC or Collect Forever Evolution and have that opening experience virtually and trade with people across the, the globe, they should be able to do that. That's our premise is really focusing on how we can deliver every type of collectible to every possible collector on the face of the planet. Yeah, well, one thing I like what you've been, I think, stressing the whole time here is the whole time thinking from the collector point of view uh, rather than from the seller point of view, right? Um, I think you stress it a couple of times also with the NFTs that that a lot of times was just driven by how do we maximize some new revenue streams here versus you know what does really the collector wants or or what's best for him in this sense. And, and I like that. I think there, there it clearly comes across. I, I feel in, in everything you're saying here is that. The tools you're building and and the way you as a, as a company thinking about it is really from you know from the consumer point of view you know from your from your buyer's point of view and I think that's a that's a great philosophy to have. Yeah, for us, you know, we're very lucky in the way that you know our owner 
uh, views the, the brand and the consumer as the most important thing. So everything that we do is in the interest of the consumer. We're not trying to hit quarterly earnings. We're not trying to IPO. We're not trying to get a, another round of venture funding. We're literally trying to do the best thing for the end collector that we can possibly do on a daily basis here. And it's a, just a different philosophy. Hmm. Interesting. You, you kind of already answered one of my questions I had. What is the what is the future for you? But it, you basically just said it. Um, so there's no plans for a listing or any other, um, I guess, trade sale for now. And, and actually, let me sort of throw it out. Then uh, one of the questions I actually had is clearly there are some shifts in the industry, right? And tops being bought by fanatics is probably one of the biggest ones that I would think of. Um, uh, and of course, you know, the Dapper Labs and others have come in there. Um, you know, just comment a bit if you if you could, if you if you can, on the the uh, tops fanatics combo. Um, I thought it was quite unique and interesting uh, bringing those things together. But uh, do you see there? You know, what, what do you see with it? Well, you know, essentially we're in an industry now where fanatics' goal is to control basically everything they can potentially control. Uh, from a sports-related revenue stream, right? And, you know, trading cards, especially in collectibles over the last couple years during the pandemic when the industry got very hot, became a very logical target for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to his credit, Michael Rubin did a great job of identifying an opportunity and taking advantage of that opportunity and, you know, looking at the industry a little bit different and, you know, they're coming in, they're looking at, you know, maybe trying some new things and we'll kind of see how it, how it plays out. But, you know, the industry has, like I, I talked about earlier, it's gone through periods of consolidation as far as licensees and expansion. And I think right now we're definitely in a period of licensee contraction and, you know, eventually someday it'll probably go the other way, like a lot of the categories. Right, right. So maybe to to kind of wrap it up here, um, actually, we, we sort of didn't really sort of uh, dig so deep into your own career paths in Upper Deck. Um, you know, we kind of started right at the beginning and then went straight to, you know, obviously where we are now, you running, the, <laughs> being the president here. But uh, maybe just, just share a little bit of your own um, career through it, right? As I said, you know, we're, you were director of marketing and VP in business development and down the line, and you became the president, of course. So, uh, and that's, that's in itself already an amazing career, um, being obviously very focused with one company and of course something which you have a deep passion for as we you know established earlier uh, when you were 13 14 15 years old um, talk a bit about your own career and, and the learnings for it and you can share with you know younger audiences here well you know the the blessing and the curse of my time here at upper deck is that i came in i like to tell people i came in at the exact wrong time <laughs> okay. um the 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 industry was contracting uh, we quickly, uh, shortly afterwards, went into the Great Recession. Um, the owner at the time was ill. Um, a lot of things were going wrong for the company. Uh, and through that, I found a lot of opportunity to grow my own career, my own path, and really you know, try to grow the, the brand. And our owner passed away in 2013. Mm -hmm. And that was when I got a chance to become the president of the company and actually, you know, use all the things that I had learned 
through the first few years I was here in the company, moving up from a brand manager to the head of marketing to uh, the vice president, to really set a strategy and a course for the brand. Because at the end of the day, no matter what was going on in the economy, the industry, the company, Upper Deck is an incredible brand. Uh, it's a brand that changed the industry. It's a brand that stands for premium quality. It works with the best licensors and, and athletes and celebrities in the world. And the opportunity to lead that, whether at a brand level, a director level, vice president level, or, or, or running the company as the president, is an incredible privilege and opportunity that you know, I never thought I would have. And, you know, it's been great being able to lead the company through kind of what was a, a tough time, both for the industry and the company. And now to see the company continue to grow, the industry continue to grow and really have that growth path has been really rewarding uh, for me, both personally and professionally. Yeah, nice. And like I said, obviously, you've now been at the helmet there for 10 years, so, you know, a whole decade already. Uh, and I'm assuming you're not quite done yet. Um, so hopefully we'll have another chance in the future <laughs> to discuss that. Um, yeah, so look, uh, Jason, I think that, that that sort of is a nice way to also wrap it up. Um, I think, you know, we, we touched on many aspects and hopefully everyone uh, who listened We'll listen to this uh we'll have a much better appreciation of a how diverse the the industry is right and how broad trading cards are from you know not just sports but other segment um the physical versus digital version etc and, and the opportunities for sports ip owners to take advantage of it and you know work with companies like yourself on it so i think it's uh hopefully you know as usual there was certain nuggets in there for people to learn and experience and uh and get something out of it so thank you for your time and uh you know again i look forward to talking to you some more in the future i appreciate you having me on and and look forward to the next conversation definitely you have a great uh, evening there in uh, in california <laughs> i appreciate it thank you <laughs> Talk, talk to you soon. Cheers. All right. Bye. Thanks. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.